about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do, you, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. It's the word of the God. Caleb, I'm stealing your lectern. Sam, not Caleb. So, yeah, if you start playing and it's my sermon notes, that's what's happened. Um, Can I just say hello, especially if you're new or visiting, really good to have you with us. Uh, My name's Andrew, I'm the senior minister here, and uh, we love to meet new people, so I hope you have a great night, and I hope you can stay around and have a talk afterwards. Um, Let me begin by asking you, what is the most disorienting thing you've heard lately. For me, a contender uh, was definitely hearing the period in which I went to high school described as the 1900s. Also meeting adults who had not heard of Austin Powers. That was weird. Um, But there are much more serious candidates, aren't there? Uh, Perhaps something about the speed and severity of the changing climate or ecological collapse. Perhaps something about the way the international order is changing. Perhaps something about moral failures within the church or within government. Perhaps you've been disoriented just by hearing a piece of news. Maybe it was the invasion of Ukraine. Or maybe it was the emergence of a new variant. Perhaps you've been disoriented just by registering how things have changed in the last decades. 
Um, I know lots of people who've been just really disoriented by house prices and the reality that they somehow are not going to just be able to do what their parents did. Or if they're older and have kids, say, that, that, that registering the fact that they're not going to be able to give their children the same upbringing as they did because the situation is just so different. I think we live in disorienting times. I'm not trying to make some argument that these are like the most disorienting times ever or anything like that. That kind of historical argument is way out of my competence and in any case, I don't care. But I do think these are disorienting times. Times in which it's quite easy to feel like you've lost your bearings a little bit. Do you know what I mean? Now, losing your bearings is an image that's taken from navigation. Uh, some of you might be into, uh, you know, what's that sport where you navigate? Orienteering, sailing as well. You're into sa Yeah, you need to navigate. So a bearing is a direction of travel from one point to another. And you lose your bearings when you lose the fixed points that allow you to navigate. And I think that's how it can really easily feel. Like we've, we've lost our grip on, we've kind of lost a line of sight on a bunch of things that helped us know how to get on. But not all the fixed points are gone. They're not all gone. In fact, the really important ones are still there. That's what we're reminded of in the passage we just read, the end of Luke's Gospel. We see here how the disciples, who themselves were bewildered and lost in the days after the death of Jesus, we see how they are given fixed points by which to navigate. And they are still things that can help us get our bearings today. There are three fixed points in this passage, I think. Here they are, or at least this is a, this is a way to summarise it. Jesus is really alive. His plan is underway. And he has gone with his blessing. So that's where we're going to go. Uh, I'm forewarning you, though, that the second point takes me heaps longer. So there are three, but it's going to feel like more. But you'll be okay. Let's look at them in turn. The first fixed point we see in this passage and in this bit at the end of Luke's Gospel is that Jesus is really alive. He's not living on in the disciples' memory. He's not just present through the ongoing power of his example. I'll get rid of Caravaggio in case that's distracting you. Jesus hasn't just turned into a motivating idea or a story. He's not just a vision. He's alive, like really alive. We pick up the scene as the disciples are discussing the news that some of them have seen him, which is where we left off last week. Verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. 
I love this scene because it puts on the table what everyone is thinking. Is he, is he actually just a ghost? Because that would make sense, right? I mean, even if you don't believe in ghosts at all, it's kind of easier to believe or something like it. Maybe what was going on was some kind of delusion, some kind of mania, some kind of weird spiritual experience. Shut up, says Jesus. He doesn't literally, but he's basically saying, shut up, guys. Come on, it's me. I'm here, like the real me. I love that phrase. He says, it is I, myself. It's, it's actually me says Jesus. It's not someone else, it's me. The real me, not a ghost. Not some weird angel, it's, it's me. Touch me and see, he says. Go on. And then he goes even further, wonderfully further, verse 40. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he said to them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. I love the way Luke shows that he he gets the weirdness of this. He gets the difficulty of believing it. Even the disciples seeing him, touching him, still, he says, they did not believe it because of joy and amazement. But then Jesus asks them for something to eat, and they give him some fish. Broiled just means barbecued or cooked over heat, so just not sashimi. And he takes it and he eats it before them. Maybe ghosts can eat sashimi, I don't know, but he, 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 I don't think they can. Ghosts can't eat, right? That's, this, is not some, this is not something a ghost does. This is not something a spiritual vision does, navigating the bones, picking bits out of the teeth. Imagine the silence in the room as they watched him chew. He, he's really eating it. Is he going to swallow? Yes, he swallowed. You know, this is an incredibly important moment. It's incredibly important because, of course, it's not like Jesus' resurrection was not weird or was not mysterious. It was very mysterious. If you were here last week, remember how on the road to Emmaus he couldn't be seen, and then he could be seen, and then he disappeared. It's, it's peculiar. He's not simply alive like we are. It is different somehow. He doesn't seem to be bound by the world in the same ways that we are. The other Gospels record him appearing inside a room even though it was still locked. It's all very odd. He isn't simply alive, but he is really alive. He is really alive. He's not, he's not less alive than we are, like a ghost might be. A ghost, at least in the way people think about it, is, is kind of sort of alive in a kind of shadowy sort of world. Jesus is not like that. He's, he's, he's almost like more alive, more present. His body is, is totally real. It has flesh and bones, Jesus says. He can eat a bit of fish, but he's also not hampered by the world anymore. He's not constrained anymore. It's almost like 
Whereas previous, we have to move around the world, right? But now it's almost like the world has to move around him. No one needs to or should pretend that Jesus' resurrected body is not deeply mysterious, but there should also be no doubt that he is really back. The same person, he himself restored to life. It is I myself, says Jesus. The friends of Jesus have him back. And so do we. So do we. We don't have him back in exactly the same way as they did. But he is back. Jesus is really alive. And one day we will meet him. This one we read about in the Gospels. We will get to meet him too. And this is all incredibly important for a million reasons. right? And, and the whole New Testament is just full of moments that, that kind of try to express how big of a deal this is. Let me remind you of these wonderful words from uh, the book of Revelation. This is Jesus himself speaking. I mentioned these at Easter, but they're just worth quoting again. Here's one of the things the resurrection means. Jesus said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead. And now look, now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Listen to how John begins his first letter. This is in 1 John chapter 1. He's here summing up, I think, the whole significance of Jesus that is true because of the resurrection. He writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. See how John sums up what Jesus means? He says, the life appeared, the life, the eternal life that was with God has appeared in the world. It's burst open this world of sin and death as the thing that is most real. Friends, here is a fixed point, the fixed point, from which to begin to get your bearings. Jesus is alive, really alive. That is a rock that you can either build your house on or you can smash your ship against. He's alive. It is I myself, he says. He's a living person. But the disciples get more help to navigate than just this. Second point. Couldn't find a good bit of artwork for this one, so that's just Google Earth. Jesus goes on to teach the disciples again and to explain to them what has happened and how what has happened has happened according to a plan. And that plan is still unfolding. And they are part of it. Verse 44. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. 
And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. At first here, Jesus does the same thing that he did for the two disciples on the road. He shows them that what has happened is the key to understanding the whole Bible. The Messiah must suffer. That's what the Old Testament was about. Uh, We talked about this a bit last week, but then Jesus here goes a step further. And what he does is he says, there is still some of this story to take place. The story didn't end. It hasn't ended with my resurrection. Actually, a whole new chapter is just beginning. And that chapter is about this. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in the Messiah's name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And then he goes on to tell the disciples that they have a part to play in this. Verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. The disciples are witnesses, which means they are going to have a job to do, and the job is to bear witness. They're going to tell others of what they've seen, and Jesus says he will equip them for this task. He will clothe them with power. He will send what the Father has promised and enable them to do this task. Now, Jesus is talking there at the end about the Holy Spirit. And really, this is a prelude here to what follows in the book of Acts. So uh, the, the book of Acts, which is another book in the New Testament, is the sequel to Luke's gospel. And they were written by the same author, whose name was Luke. And what Luke is here, doing here is preparing the way for Acts, which is really the story of how the apostles were clothed with power and all that they did. For now, though, let's just stay with what we learn here. What has happened, Jesus says, has happened according to God's plan, and that plan is still unfolding. There is a next stage that is, is just beginning, and that the disciples are going to be a part of, and that next stage is about repentance for the forgiveness of sins being preached in the Messiah's name to the whole world. That is the next fixed point from which the disciples are meant to get their bearings. Mission. It's meant to give us our bearings too. Because this stage of the plan, this chapter, is still unfolding This is still where we are. It's where we're up to in the story. The time of the preaching of the gospel. The time of mission. We need to pause here, though, because we can't think about mission as if it's only just beginning now. An awful lot has happened between the apostles' time and now, and... When we think about that, it's really easy to feel like something malfunctioned somewhere along the way. Because it's it's been a long time, and it's been less than straightforward. We could think about a lot of things here, but let's just think about our own country. You may or may not be familiar with the history, but the preaching of repentance for the forgiveness of sins came to Australia in a very problematic way. 
The Christian gospel was bound up with all sorts of very bad ideas about the British Empire, about civilization and land. The gospel first came to Australia largely in the hands of the evangelical chaplain who was tacked onto the first fleet like putting a spoiler on a Toyota Camry and whose job, according to the authorities, was basically to tell a bunch of recalcitrant prisoners to be a bit more moral. It was pretty hopeless. And it reached, the gospel reached the Aboriginal people then, often accompanied by very destructive prejudices and assumptions. And it was bound up with and caught up in things that can now only be cause for grief and lamentation. Now that is not the whole story. To tell the whole story, we would have to tell also of the missionaries who were some of the first and most vocal defenders of Aboriginal peoples, who learned and preserved some of their languages, though we, we, wish, we wish there'd be more. We'd have to tell of the indigenous evangelists who took the gospel to their own peoples with incredible boldness and insight. Alongside the stories of missions that went badly wrong, we'd have to tell of sto stories of missions that were really very good in a lot of ways, or at least in which good was brought out of evil. But still, there is no way we can look at the history of Christian mission in Australia and see pure triumph. It's much messier than that and sometimes, frankly, awful. So what do we do with this? Has Jesus' plan malfunctioned? Can we still take our bearings from the idea that this is the time for repentance for the forgiveness of sins going to the nations? Yes, we can, for two reasons. The first is that the messiness of Christian mission, and I know that word messiness is not adequate. I'm not meaning by it to cover over terrible evils. I just didn't know quite what to, how to describe the, the ambiguity and mixedness of it. But it shouldn't, it shouldn't surprise us, right? Because Jesus gave the mission to us. He gave this task to human beings, people like you and me who are all at best only beginning our journey out of darkness, who are only ever forgiven sinners. The preaching of repentance is a task Jesus gave to ordinary Christians, and the problem with ordinary Christians is that they're ordinary But there's a second reason that Jesus' mission can still give us our bearings, not just that it shouldn't surprise us. The second reason is got to do with the content of the message. You see, what we preach in Jesus' name is repentance. And that is important because it reminds us that the message we preach, it gives us, in fact, it requires of us the stance we need towards our own failures. Now, this is a slightly tricky point, so let me try and explain it. You can ask about it further in the question time if you want. 
See, what we preach in Christian mission is repentance, which means turning away from sin. Yes, this is repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Okay? But the forgiveness of sins, that does not mean that repentance is just words that don't require us to change our lives. No, repentance means turning around and leaving things behind. So the gospel that is preached in Jesus' name is a call to turn away from what is evil. It is not the news that we can just ignore or forget about what is wrong. It is not the news that our sins are forgiven and so we can just go on as we were before but now a lot less anxious about things that used to make us uncomfortable. That's not the gospel. No, the gospel is a call to real repentance because of the news that atonement has been made and eternal life has appeared. You see, what Jesus has done, the news that his work on the cross and by rising to new life is big enough and powerful enough for everything, that is meant to free us to be honest and to face our sins. The gospel is meant to enable us to look square at our wrongdoings and turn from them. It's meant to free us from the need we feel instinctively to hide our sins, the need we feel to, to, to save face and to cover our sense of shame. Actually, we're free from that because the forgiveness of sins is real and Jesus' death and resurrection is powerful enough to deal with whatever it is. The gospel is a summons, a summons to give up our indifference and our despair about sin and to take up arms against it. And so if we're going to tell the world about Jesus, we have to be willing to live our lives in a way that honours that message. Repentance has to be directed towards ourselves as well. Continually, we are called to refuse sin and evil wherever we find it in ourselves. And so the mission of the church really has to go along with the most honest acknowledgement we can manage of our failures. And when we are told of the failures of the church or in mission... We must not throw up the barricades and protect our reputations. Instead, we, we should look earnestly for the truth with a heavy heart, ready to accept failure if we find it, and to repent, to acknowledge and face our past failures without despair and without being defeated by them because we believe in forgiveness, without giving up, that is actually a service to Christian mission because it can bear witness to the fact that we really believe this message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, I know that was a long pause, but I think it's an important thing we need to kind of learn to talk about or at least begin talking about. But where does all that leave us? Well, it leaves us actually just realizing that this is still a fixed point. Jesus' plan is still unfolding. 
And we are still called to be part of it today. This is where we're up to in the story. That now is the time of mission. And so I want to finish this point by asking you, how will you be a part of it? How will you care about and support the preaching of repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all nations? I know many of you are already doing this in lots of ways and we as a church are trying to, trying to do it and I just rejoice in that. Fantastic. Let's take this chance. Why don't you take this chance to think again about how the Lord might be calling you, calling us to be part of sharing this great news with the world. We, we have not learnt that there is something more important to be doing in this time. What opportunities do you have to be telling others about Jesus and supporting that happening? Uh, let me be clear, it is not about everybody becoming a minister or a missionary. That would be an awful church to be a part of, and uh, it's not about that. It also would be totally financially hopeless, so... It's not, it's not about that. Actually, it's more than that. I think there are often more and often more important opportunities for bearing witness and for con contributing outside ministry. But also, gospel work does depend completely on the people behind the scenes or alongside who sacrifice in a range of ways to make everything work. But let me say too that this call does involve some people going into gospel service, offering part or all of their working lives to this mission. So let me ask you, friends, what might the Lord be laying on your heart? All right, that's gone a bit long, that second point. One more. Don't worry, it's much shorter, and it's accompanied by this extremely weird artwork of the Ascension, which I thought you would enjoy. Actually, it's not the only artwork where it looks like Jesus' feet are hanging down out of a, some kind of weird doona, but, um, and there's some pretty freaked out people down below. This was a thing in medieval art. The ascension, you just, Jesus' feet, that's all you get. There's a last fixed point, I think, in this passage in the wonderful conclusion, and it's that Jesus has gone with his blessing. Have a look here, verse 50. When he had led them out, to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. What I want us to notice here is simply the way Jesus leaves the disciples. He doesn't leave them with a warning, telling them not to let him down, or else. He doesn't leave them with a wagging finger, sternly telling them that he'll be watching them. He leaves with a blessing. You know, I'd never noticed this before, actually. That the, the last act of Jesus before his ascension at the end of Luke is to lift up his hands and to bless the disciples. A blessing is a kind of prayer, but in the form almost of a command. 
It is a moment of boldness where somebody commands that good come upon somebody else in the confidence that that is God's will, that that is what God wants and desires. And Jesus leaves and is taken up to heaven as he is blessing the disciples. I just want to end this sermon by taking this in. That Jesus goes from the disciples with a blessing being spoken upon them. And they represent us too. Jesus goes blessing the disciples and all who will follow them in following him. He has gone from us and left us with our work to do with a good word full of grace and life and hope. Friends, we live and we work and we seek to serve Jesus and we go about our lives not under a word of of judgment and rebuke, of warning and threat, but under a word of blessing. He loves us. He loves you. And he wants what is good for you. Jesus does not want us to fail, but to succeed. He does not want us to fall, but to stand. He is the living one, and he is for us. How do you think God looks upon you and upon your life? Full of disappointment, maybe? Frustrated? Exasperated? With a stern and angry countenance? God does care about sin. He wants us to keep turning from it in repentance and faith. But God is not a disappointed violin teacher scowling at us and our lack of progress. He is the Lord Jesus, lifting up his hands in blessing, full of love and hope and confidence in us. Can I invite you to just take away this image, not the one with the feet, but the image in the gospel of him lifting up his hands in blessing. Take that away with you today. Of Jesus' hands lifted in blessing, let that be a point from which you get your bearings. Let it fill you with the same joy that the disciples felt, that led them to worship and to be ready to do great things in his service. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you as the living one, ascended now to the Father's right hand, who pours out your spirit upon us. We praise you that it is you who is alive, the one we meet in the Gospels, not someone else. We praise you that you are really alive. A point of sure and certain hope with which we may live and face death. Help us to get on with this mission you have given us, which we so often stuff up, with the humility to repent and the joy and hope born of the knowledge that our sins are forgiven and your blessing is upon us. Amen.
for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.